Okay, here we go. Um, okay. In theory, we're live. I, I don't know why I, I always say that. I just, I don't trust technology. I, I don't know why, but I just don't. Um, so where are you located? Are you, you're in Madison? I'm in Madison, Wisconsin, United yeah. States. I've been there one time, drove through Madison on my way to Milwaukee. I think that's how it works, right? Yeah. Yes, yeah. it's Milwaukee is a, only an hour away from Madison. So yeah, yeah, there was a convention. Yeah, there was a convention in, in Milwaukee that we went to and, and drove through Madison. Madison was really great. I really liked it. Um, all right, I think we're I think we're ready. So uh, so who are you and, and what do you do? Yes, so my name is Elena Dungia. I'm an Italian-American scientist and um, located in Madison because I'm associate professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Uh, I have a background, uh, um, uh, I grew up in, in, in Italy and I also traveled in Europe before coming to US and have a training in physics. but. Uh, with my PhD and my later research, I, I became actually mostly an astronomer in the last in the last few years. And so, um, and now I work uh, in between uh, galactic dynamics, which is my my passion for pure research, which is you know more related to math and physics, but applied to astronomy. And now uh, aerospace, which is my second passion because uh, I want to serve the society with an application, with doing something, using creativity and using, you know, my background in physics to see if I can be useful for the next few years to society. Well, I would love to to talk about that. But but like, and I'm really fa interested in the in in the NIAC project that, you know, that's how you came to my attention was you were one of the winners of a recent NIAC grant. Um, about a topic to build an artificial magnetosphere. And I'm really excited about that. But I'm also a gigantic fan of the Gaia Space Telescope, of galactic dynamics, of stellar motion, and all of the amazing mysteries. So I want to talk about that first before we shift over and just to sort of give people a better background of, of what you work with. So you lead a team at Madison working on the galaxy. Can you talk about that? Yes, absolutely. Yes, I have a team of young students. They are graduate students, so they are doing their own PhD, but I also work with undergraduate students. And the common theme is try to understand how our Milky Way came together and also you know, uh, how the stars uh, move in our Milky Way. The reason for that is that we are really in a period of renaissance for for galactic dynamics, so in order to understand the motion of stars. And the reason is exactly because we have data coming up from mainly from Gaia, the Gaia mission, which is a satellite, it's a telescope orbiting around the Earth. It's actually in space around us, and it's taking images of the sky every day. And with these images on the sky, it's giving us information for two billion stars in our Milky Way, two billion stars. That's so many stars. That's crazy. Their motion, their, motion, their location, and their distance. 
Now, this is a big problem in astronomy. It's been a huge problem because we, in astronomy, we see the sky. We can see with telescopes, uh, you know, uh, deep in space. That means we go back in time watching, uh, you know, the sky, but we don't know. We never know exactly the distances. So, and for the Milky Way, until 20 years ago, with the previous mission, which was, was Hipparchus, we knew um, the motion of a few thousand stars. And before that, the information came from Newton, <laughs> so from 400, 500 years ago. Right, the person. <laughs> the person. Yeah. So we had, right, we had a gap of 500 years. Then came Hipparchus 20 years ago and gave us some little information. And, you know, that opened the eyes for a few thousand stars. And now comes Gaia and brings uh, the information for two billion stars. So this means that we are in the renaissance for astronomy because we can know now, um, we can, you know, discover how far our stars, how do they move in our, including our sun. And for example, we can, we can know also what, is the structure of our galaxy. You know, we know that our galaxy is a disk, so it has a disk of stars, and there are features like arms, probably similar to other galaxies, but because we are inside our own galaxy, we are not sure about that. So we are discovering like blinded people now with the data trying to figure out, you know, what is the, the, um, the structure of our galaxy? How does it look like? And I think Gaia is giving us also a lot of information about this and a lot of information about also the, mo the motion of stars. For example, we are discovering that our sun did not form here where we are now, but it formed elsewhere. And our sun moved away from its initial location. And it moved away because of resonances. <laughs> so because the sun you know, um, has been pushed away by, uh, you know, by the presence of these features in the galaxy, like spiral arms and a bar at the center that's rotating with the galaxy. They're all features made by stars. They are like a pattern, like, uh, you know, waves. And they are perturbing the, the, the stars in a way that they move, uh, you know, in going in, like in a dance with other stars because they resonate in their motion with other stars. So we are in the process with Gaia in the next 10 years uh, to know exactly which stars resonate with other stars, what is their movement, their motions, mm. and the structure of our own galaxy. That's really interesting. I mean, I mean, I know like we think about resonances like Jupiter with the moons of Jupiter and how mm. the different moons are in various resonances with each other. But for the stars in the Milky Way to be in these kinds of resonances. That's that's something that I, I didn't expect. What else has Gaia taught us about the Milky Way in just a decade now that we didn't know before we started this process? So he told us that uh, um, mainly that there are a lot of... Uh, so we thought before Gaia that the, the stellar disk is quite... Uh, quiescent, you know, quite uh, smooth. And with Gaia, we are actually um, open, opening our eyes and seeing already that around our sun, the disk is not smooth. That means that stars are, uh, you know, um, they are forming uh, um, um, aggregations, associations that they associate, 
not because they are formed together, but because they resonate for resonances. Mm-hmm. So we are discovering resonances. These resonances are due to really the structure of our disk. And we are discovering that there is a lot of perturbation, like uh, undul- undulation mm-hmm. in our galaxy, corrugations. You know, um, and the disk is like, you know, uh, it's plenty of waves of stars. It's a little bit like in the ocean. You know, the stars move like when, when you float in the ocean, you know, and, you know, a pattern comes and you move with the water, it's exactly what stars do. A pattern comes and they, you know, they undulate, they basically move around. And we are discovering that there's a lot of these patterns that we didn't know about. And we are trying to figure out what, what what causes these waves. Like in the ocean, you know, the ocean has waves when something perturbs it. And in the Milky Way, there's there's a lot of perturbation so what we are discovering is that eventually there are a lot of probably um, clumps of dark matter. They might perturb the disk. This dark matter is not visible. Uh-huh. It's just making, uh, you know, 30% of the budget of the universe mass. We are only making 4% with planets and galaxies. And eventually it's perturbing the disk and also visible galaxies like little dwarf galaxies. They are our companion, they are small, they orbit around the Milky Way and they might perturb you know, our um, vicinity. There's one dwarf galaxy, especially called Sagittarius that it's eventually perturbing and creating a lot of this corrugation. Also with Gaia, we discovered that uh, um, Milky Way cannibalized another small galaxy by gravity. Gravity is the most important force in the universe. So it's, you know, it's what what really regulates in, in the universe, you know, the motion of, uh, of everything. And so um, by cannibalization, you know, the Milky Way probably nine uh, billions years ago uh, cannibalized a smaller, another little galaxy that at that time was, was big enough that it's still now in the, you know, in the middle of our stellar disk. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So we have we are seeing the remnants of that cannibalization, and I think this is another big uh, story, another big discovery that came with Gaia. So this idea about about dark matter, the presence of dark matter within the galaxy itself. You know, when I think when I envision dark matter, I think of this sort of smooth halo a big blob that the Milky Way is embedded within and and this dark matter halo is what is responsible for the overall motion and cohesion of the of the Milky Way. But could you you know, if dark matter was in smaller blobs that were floating around? Is that something that you could see in the motions of the stars? Yes. So indeed, uh, when uh, um, so initially people thought that dark matter is maybe like a, a cocoon. It's like a, you know a smooth cocoon that surrounds. A, it's like a halo, you know, yeah. around the galaxy, and it's making ninety percent of the mass of the galaxy. Just ninety percent. So it's, it's the majority of the mass, but it's like a cocoon, you know, extended, and the galaxy, the visible galaxy, will be at the center of this cocoon. Uh, in reality, when people made um, the first uh, numerical experiments to really uh, simulate the dark matter that we believe is the framework of our universe, 
they realize that it's not smooth. This is not a smooth cocoon, but it's clumpy. So it's made of clumps of animals, animals. So the little clumps are, you know, they have random orbits. So they are, you know, orbiting around the center of the galaxy or orbiting around, you know, the central part, that, which is the visible galaxy. And then, um, you know, that's what we, um, th this is a source of perturbation. And this perturbation could actually um, perturb the motion of the stars because stars and dark matter, they feel gravity both. So gravity is affecting both. And so one of the new research areas that came up in the last few years when these numerical experiments uh, became available to the community is that you know there might be these clumps of dark matter they are perturbing streams of stars that we see on the sky so we have also streams in the you know the, there, there's a halo of stars as well around our galaxy and these streams of stars can be perturbed by the presence of these dark clumps so an interesting research area is studying the motion of the stars with gaia in order to understand you know or with future missions in order to understand if we can constrain the nature of the dark matter. Hmm. Hmm. It's a mystery. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we, we know it's there and we're getting better at mapping it and and we can use it as a telescope to be able to view, like to use gravitational lensing, but we still don't know what it is. Which, exactly. Right. Um, well, like one idea is that dark matter could be, say, these primordial black holes, these black holes left over from the formation of the universe. Would a like a smaller, a compact object like a black hole behave, like provide a different motion of the stars than a larger diffuse blob? Like, could you get to a point where you actually know how big these chunks of dark matter are? So people look at into compact objects, including black hole. It seems that there's no enough, uh, there's no enough of those objects uh, to mm. really um, uh, make uh, up all the mass of the Milky Way dark matter. Right. Okay. So you really need to invoke uh, some exotic, uh, uh, you know, uh, particle that has never been discovered. Uh, and so um, it is really the mystery and it's quite an embarrassing time right now because I think it's more than 30 years that we have a framework, a cosmological framework for dark matter. We have all the paradigm, you know, to form structure formations, to form galaxies within that framework, but physicists did not discover the particle yet. Well, I so, wouldn't call it embarrassing. I would call it interesting. Exciting, right? Exciting, like, but... yeah, yeah. I mean, like, what's life without mysteries? So, well, it could be, it could be that you know, um, because the dark matter is, you know, elusive in some way because it doesn't really, it only interacts with visible matter by gravity, but does not interact eventually in any other way. So it's difficult to to detect, to be detected. Right. However. You know, we have as scientists, we have to keep always our mind open that it might be there might be something else and we just don't know and we might be on the wrong track. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's I mean, with science, you you try to test every idea that you can think of, hoping to disprove them. 
and it's only the ones that you just can't disprove that just keep sticking around that that that's what turns into the consensus that maybe it's right but still anyone can can disprove it at, at any time um so i'd like to talk a bit about like the history of the of the the sun like the sun probably formed in a solar nebula with a bunch of other stars four billion years four and a half billion years ago do we have any sense of of where we started and who our siblings were at the time this is a very good question so we don't have a conclusive answer to that but uh, you know thanks to gaia and thanks to the next uh, upcoming survey we are actually thinking that the sun has different properties of the neighboring stars. And so it probably formed in, in a cluster. So, you know, with other siblings, but eventually uh, has been dispersed and moved away. So it's an immigrant in the part of the galaxy where we are. So does not, it doesn't belong to, we don't belong to this area. You know, I feel like myself, I'm an immigrant in the United States, but so the sun has been immigrated, you know, from migrate, migrated from another area. Um, and eventually um, it's probably uh, has been also, you know, a, a few kiloparsecs, so several, you know, uh, light years, tons of light years away. And it might have been, um, you know, a slow process the one of migrating. So, and it's really due, this is the innovative part that we believe now due to resonances. It might have just resonated with some of these non-accessymetry features, we call them like this, like a spiral arms, to just migrate where it is now. And we know it because the sun is really placed almost in the mid plane in our galaxy. And that's where basically the majority of the stars that have peculiar properties like our sun do reside if they migrate. And we know this because we make models. We use supercomputers to do make models to see by gravity how stars move, just you know, mocking exactly what happens in the Milky Way. So we have that level of details right now in our models. So it's not like you know the time of Newton or or uh, where people use only, um, you know, uh, linear theory or, you know, pen and paper or very detailed calculation. But now these days we can really using um, numerical experiments to um, capture the complexity of gravity and see really how, you know, several, several stars move together by collective uh, motions. So very similarly to what we believe is the physical process that regulates you know, the motion of the stars. And, and we can, you know, compare to what we are learning from Gaia and from these new surveys that, you know, is telling us what the nature does. And, and like, I mean, this idea, I guess, of these, of these interactions between these stars, just one by one plucking the stars out of the, the stellar nebula until the whole thing is sort of spread out. Do we think that we shifted from like, do we start at the same at least distance from the center of the Milky Way? Did we perhaps start closer in farther out? Is there anything weird about the sun that says that maybe it it came from a very different part of the of the galaxy? It might not come. It will not come from the central part of the galaxy. So it might have been either in the 
you know, slightly inner part than we are now or slightly outer where we are now, just a few kiloparsec away, but not from the inner part. And it's it takes a while, you know, before it really moves, uh, moves its emotion. Um, but this is exactly the, fr the frontier, right? Right now it's the forefront frontier, the, you know, for research about galactic dynamics just to, so the, you know, the, the ideal, um, let's say the, the ideal scenario is that we learn, uh, we want to learn about each star. Where does it come from? That's the big question. <laughs> right. Yeah. So you could like roll the whole Milky Way up back in time. Mapping, mapping, and, mapping. And, and pull every galaxy that merged in and go right back to the beginning. That would be, do you think something like that is possible? Do you think you could get to a point where you could, I mean, I think about like say a three body interaction is so chaotic it would be really difficult to to unravel the history of three objects interacting we've got four 100 billion objects interacting in the in the milky way do you think we could get to a point where we could start to unravel how the milky way came together i think we are not there yet but with the information that we get not only from gaia gaia gives us distances of stars and gives us the motion. So it tells us, you know, how they're moving. But other surveys like the Sloan survey, the SDSS-5 is called, gives us metal, met, metallicity information, gives us the composition of those stars. And the composition oh, tells, yeah. us, tells us a lot because stars that are born together, siblings, do have the same chemistry. So they, they, are, they have their ID with chemistry. And then they get dispersed in the Milky Way because of tidal interactions, gravity mainly, they get dispersed. But they keep, uh, you know, just uh, tagging their metallicity. We, I think, and, you know, comparing that they might have similar metallicity, but also similar velocity when they're born together. So keeping all this information together, then we can, the idea is to try to, you know, to tag all those stars and looking for the siblings which are the ones, the stars that have similar ID in chemistry and similar velocities. Right. So that's the big frontier now. D is there like a galactic chemistry? Like, could you tell when some dwarf galaxy was consumed by the Milky Way? Do they, do all of those stars have any kind of similar chemistry? Or is that information lost? Uh, so the ones, the stars that are coming, they have an extra galactic origin. That means that they are not born in situ. They're not born in our disk by gas, but they are born elsewhere. And they've been accredited by cannibalization. They usually have lower, they have, they are more poor in, in metals. So they are more poor. So yes, we have some, some way to distinguish them. Huh. And um, they might have also uh, different velocities because they are coming from something has been accreted. So those things uh, were not there yet, but there are already progress done with Gaia and the combination with these other surveys about metallicity. So we already know some cannibalization that happened also of a small little dwarf, but what we'll, we'll learn soon also combining uh, the new models that we have, the new computational power that we can use these days, where, as you said, you don't, you know, you overcome the problem of the three body because you can study n body, n is can be, you know, as many as a billion stars, and um, solving the equation of the equation of motion for a billion of stars with 
supercomputers, basically you don't have to do it pen and paper so that you are not do you're not able to do it. But you know, using these complex uh, codes, you can actually follow the motion of all those stars and stars by gravity and capturing all their features by gravity, you know. So basically you are overcoming that problem these days. That's why it's really um, a challenging, but also very exciting time because we have more models, more computational power, and now more data that opens our eyes, you know, in, in, the, in our galaxy that we didn't have before. So we are making really a step forward after 500 years. Right, yeah, yeah, Newton would be, would be glad to see the work that's being done. Um, I got one last question about about galaxies, and then I'd like to shift gears. Where do globular clusters come from? Oh, this is a $1 million question. <laughs> I think there's no real consensus about so these globular clusters are very interesting, because they are dense structures of stars. But we know that there's no dark matter there. So there's no end. So they are an example of structure where dark matter does not does not you know does not surround them. So the consensus that isn't there is because the debate is because some scientists believe that they had dark matter and this dark matter has been stripped by gravity because usually dark matter is more extended that than the stars when the stars are more concentrated in the inner parts in any structure and then the dark matter is like a surrounding area so they've been stripped because you know it's more susceptible to tidal torques and to gravity and other scientists don't feel that this is actually the explanation and so those globular clusters just formed by a big burst of star formation from initial clouds of gas but um there's no consensus. So it's, it's very different, difficult to, to find structures so dense, even when you start from an initial cloud of gas. So there's a lot of physics there that involves the formation of global classes. And unfortunately, the numerical simulations in this case, uh, uh, in a cosmological context, when you really want to form global clusters, when you form the galaxies in those very complex uh, simulations, uh, it's very difficult to resolve those structures. And so it's hard to to learn about really their origin. So there's a lot of debate, but this is one of the most interesting questions because global clusters are a mystery still, their origin, but they're very common. So all galaxies have global clusters. But the interesting part is that they are very old structure. They can be almost as old as the universe. So they're there since a long time. Mm -hmm. Our galaxy came together much later than the globular clusters. Probably the globular clusters have been formed elsewhere or they have been formed at the beginning of our galaxy and they are the, the witness of the early universe and they are around us. So, so they contain the oldest stars that we know from the universe. So what's a weird idea about globular clusters that you like? I am not a fan of of the idea that they are formed that they had initially dark matter, a dark matter subhalo, you know, a cocoon. So I think they are really, um, I think they might have been formed when big concentrations of gas, you know, were um, were in the galaxy in the past. Maybe um, they've even been formed in in initial disk, like a giant molecular clouds when you form stars in the in mm -hmm. disk. 
in, in a primordial disk and then they might have been stripped away once they're formed and, you know, along tails because we know that galaxies go through um, interactions and distortions with other galaxies because they interact all the time and they might have been later on accredited, you know, um, in other systems or in our Milky Way. So they might have formed a long time ago in some seeds, initial seeds. And Could then they have been formed ago. before the galaxies, do you think? They, they formed definitely before the galaxy. Huh. They formed definitely before the galaxy. So was there, I mean, was it possible that there was some, the way the density of the universe was or the temperature or, or the, the, the particle environment or whatever it was, that this was the preferred structure was these weird spheres. And then later on, as more material was flowing in, and there was more tidal streams, then you got these things spinning. And that's when you started to get get I the larger thinking, galaxies. Yeah, I would think that that would make sense to me. It's difficult to prove it because we don't have the computational power or we are getting to the point now, but not yet yeah. to really give an answer to that. Um, but definitely they formed much before the galaxy because in our understanding of the universe, and this has some, um, you know, has, some, uh, has been proved by observations. When you look at deeper in space and you see uh, basically back in time systems, Systems are smaller in the early universe and they become bigger by time. So today galaxies are, you know, they grew up, they were much smaller in the past. So the little things, so little dwarf galaxy, little um, globular clusters, all things that have low mass for and size, they formed a long time ago. They are old <clears throat> and things that are, you know, um, bigger. They just form later on by accretion because gravity tends to put together mass and growing by time. So earlier you go more, you know, global cast is also very old because if you look at the age of the stars, they have been formed a long time ago. They can be, you know, 11 billion years old, 12 billion years old. So almost yeah. like the time of the universe. Yeah, it's it, I, I find them really fascinating. And, you know, one is because they're very easy to see with a pair of binoculars or a small telescope, you can just see them right there in the sky, like the M, you know, M 13 in, in Hercules and, and things like that. And so you've got this just incredible, beautiful, and the, the better the camera, the better the picture, the more stars there are, the more this just looks like this incredible object. And yet, we still just kind of don't know where they come from. And it's, uh, it's great. I love it. Um, yeah, maybe I hope we never find out. Um, all right. Now I want to shift gears and, and this is going to be like an extreme gear shift to go completely in a totally different direction. Um, as the listeners know, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of NASA's advanced innovative concepts, the NIAC awards. And these are these small grants that are handed out to researchers who are trying to solve some interesting fundamental very out of the box idea for space flight, for astronomy, for science, for earth observation, for any of these ideas, but like only weird ideas, only extreme ideas are, are what's interesting to this, to this group. You recently were awarded one of these NIAC grants. Uh, so tell me what, uh, what is the concept that, that NASA has, is helping you try to investigate? 
So NASA awarded us, awarded our team. So I'm the PI, but I'm part of a team. So the other people, you know, that contributed to this and um, awarded this idea because we uh, came up with a novel idea about how to shield the spacecrafts, spaceships really, by uh, from cosmic radiation. And the reason is because, you know, companies, also private companies like SpaceX or other companies, they are really pushing for, you know, with the idea and are engaging the audience and the public with the idea that we'll go to Mars and, you know, we, we, we're going to explore other planets with the human exploration. But they never say really that um, this is actually not possible these days. We can only go to the moon for a short time, but, you know, landing on the moon and staying for, you know, for a long time and, you know, really having, having uh, astronauts with uh, moon habitats right now, it's not possible because we, there is cosmic radiation. So space is actually a killer, you know. So as, you know, as humans, we are very privileged on the earth because the earth has a magnetic field due to the interior of the earth. This magnetic field shields away naturally for us all these harmful particles for our body. Once we go outside the earth and we start going on the moon, but even more if we go to Mars, which is more far away than the moon. So we need to travel there six months, three, six months to go there. So we are exposed to all this harmful radiation. That's a little bit like doing, like being exposed to radiotherapy, like when you have cancer. So it's actually destroying your tissues. So the human species is actually very fragile to uh, cosmic radiation. These are very um, energetic particles like protons or ions or you know heavy ions, and they are accelerated. They're indeed called the cosmic rays. They're, you know, they go very, very fast. And so, and passing through our tissues, they are actually depositing a lot of energy. And, and this can eventually um, uh, make you know, uh, humans very fragile to cardiovascular, you know, uh, problems, damage of the brain, maybe developing cancer. So we don't know exactly what are all the you know, the issues with that. But definitely NASA is aware of this problem. And so we came up with the idea of using, looking at the nature and uh, trying to see how nature, you know, makes it to preserve life on our planet. It has a magnetic field. So no, we were not the first one to came up, who came up with this idea. People have looked at that. But, yeah. but I think that the advantage we had is that we, uh, we are reproposing the idea of a magnetic field around spacecrafts, but with using the new technology like superconductors and using a new idea for a new configuration for the magnetic field that hasn't been used before. So our magnetosphere has been you know, um, awarded by NASA because they found novel that we have a deployable device. We provided, you know, we invented some way uh, a deployable device, which, you know, it's something that NASA uh, feels that would be the way to go. And also the geometry that we propose produces a magnetic field in the outer part of the spacecraft, but does not provide any magnetic field in the inner parts of the spacecraft, right. where the astronauts would be basically based. And this is also something that um, hasn't been proposed before. So the previous magnetic fields were much more confined around the spacecraft, and this can cause troubles because uh, 
cosmic rays, once they impact the spacecraft, they, um, they basically generate a, a shower of other particles that can be uh, harmful, like neutrons, right. to our uh, so to to astronauts. So we reduce that problem. And I think NASA um, thought wanted to to bet on this and give us you know um, a a, a phase, uh, awarded us with phase one. That means that we have a feasibility study to show the proof of concept and see if we can move on with the next step. Yeah, it. You know, I've I've done a few articles and and even videos on this concept, and you can go back in NASA literature to the fifties, to the sixties. People have been proposing this idea. Um, there have been other NIAC awards in the past that have attempted to investigate this. The European Space Agency has awarded some projects to do this out of Italy, I think. Um, uh, like everyone puts comments in my videos saying, why don't they just build a magnetosphere like the earth? Um, it's really hard. So can, can you sort of explain why this is such a difficult challenge? What, what kinds of forces and energies are we dealing with that is making this so tricky? So you need to create a magnetic field which has to be quite extended outside the spacecraft because you want that this magnetic field deflects the you know the cosmic rays coming from space on the other hand you um you need to okay the the, the real challenge has been always the current of each coil that generates the you know the magnetosphere and to you know how to sustain that current and you know you need to to have a high, um, you know, a lot of current and a, a high magnetic field to really deflect the majority of these energetic particles. This creates also big forces, magnetic forces, and you need to have a, a robust, solid structure. Solid structure means that the weight is large. Mm -hmm. And so this is the big challenge. So how you balance you know you need to have something light because you know you can't bring it you know you can't bring in space to uh way this was the problem that people had in the past 10 years ago there was a successful really idea that came from europe especially from an italian team and they proposed um a really an active shielding which is a magnetosphere but the weight of the superconductors at the time before you know the new era of superconductors or new materials that are coming up now made them you know the structure too heavy and unfeasible so they also proposed a geometry for the magnetic field that was too close was not basically was too confined to the spacecraft so they they really learned the lesson and they which we started from learning from them that that was not the right geometry to use and so we we changed direction so we used the, basically the previous ideas right we made a, a learn we learned from that and we moved uh, uh, i think we are proposing at the time when active shielding is much more promising now because new geometries and because new materials and new superconductors that will probably allow to make this eventually feasible right. yeah the 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 understanding that I had gotten is up until this point, every idea is is in terms of mass and in terms of the power required to 
to generate the electric field as well as the additional material, you're better off just surrounding your spacecraft with metal or right that that in the end, just metal is more cost effective than than any kind of magnetic field that we're able to generate. So so you are pretty excited that there's new technology, there's new some new ideas. So let's talk about some of the new technologies that have come together that you think are going to enable this. Right. So um, let's say the new um, game change now is the superconductors of new generation. For example, we suggested the Repco, but we haven't done yet a, a complete feasibility study. Okay, this is just a, what we were thinking about to, uh, to suggest. Repco are now, these superconductors are like tapes. So they are very small and you tape them around the coil. So you have to compute how many wrapping you have to do on each coil to generate the current that you need. But they use a little, you know, little current each, you know, for each wrapping. So you can sum up up to the current that, we, for example, we needed, which is a few million ampere for each coil. So it is possible to do these days. These were not available 10 years ago. And they also uh, work on a different temperature than what was supposed in right. the past. In the past they, so now they have, you know, they have a higher temperature. So they basically, um, they are much more suitable for, you know, in terms of weight and in terms of uh, feasibility for studies like this. And they were not on the table 10 years ago. So I guess the combination of this with, uh, we also made the calculation initial calculation of how many coils we would need in our configuration to generate. And we found that there are eight coils for now, but we can optimize better now with the NIAC, with these funds, because we want to really, you have to find the balance between reducing the weight as much as possible. So you want to, you know, possibly find an optimization between the number of coils, possibly lower, as lower as possible, because they have their weight, each of them. On the other hand, they need to be you need to create enough current to generate these magnetic fields and they need to be solid enough, you know, that you can basically um, um, bring them in space um, and, you know, and keep their, their um, you know, they can contrast the high magnetic forces, which will try to destabilize them right. once the magnetic field is acting. So we found that, you know, I would say what we need, need, we need to reduce the weight as well. So it's a little bit too heavy right now, but it's much lighter than any, other, um, you know, um, we compare already any any other idea that has been proposed. So that's why, uh, you know, NASA uh, bet on us. And, um, but, you know, we have nine months now to right. optimize <laughs> our uh, model and, and see what we can propose for the next step as a feasible, as a feasible study. Also, let me tell, tell you that, you know, uh, I'm the PI and the principal investigator because I initiated this by my personal you know, curiosity and also my uh, my will my will to serve this community in something that was a big challenge. But I have an excellent team of another physicist, Paolo Desiati, who is a high energy physicist, and you know he he really um, you know he knows a lot about magnetic fields and and cosmic rays. So we came up with an initial concept, and then we had fabulous uh, undergraduate students uh, in. Uh, you know, in mechanical engineering and physical engineering who actually did the structure. They really designed, you know, how we should put the coil in. Mm. So this is really a team of students, young students, and, and, uh, and, and basically to, 
uh, to more senior people like me and Paolo. So, so let's imagine that, you know, we're 30 years in the future. Uh, you've gone through all of the process and there's prototypes. And now there's a new spacecraft that's being launched for the first time. Maybe it's a mission to Mars and they're going to deploy the radiation shield. So what would what would happen? Imagine NASA, you know, they're in space, they've they've just, you know, they've done their boost and they're on their way to Mars and NASA gives them the order to deploy the shield. Um, what would happen? I think what will happen is that uh, right now we make calculations to reduce, uh, you know, the cosmic rays uh, um, uh, impact of uh, almost 40 or 50 percent for the ones that have lower energy. And what we want to do is now to improve, uh, to go to higher energy and see how much we can basically reduce that flux of cosmic rays. But in principle, if this is feasible, this means that we will now reduce, you know, to zero <laughs> uh, the impact of cosmic rays. But, but this will mean that, um, you know, astronauts will be able to absorb less uh, radiation uh, during a trip to Mars. So this will mean that they will uh, probably develop later, um, you know, bad uh, harm, you know, bad, bad uh, um, response from the body to cosmic radiation. So it will preserve some way life. And this active shielding is, is going to be then, if we find this interesting for spacecrafts, we have to combine with the new design that people will do for the habitats for, you know, for the moon or for, so it's actually, it has to be combined with the passive shielding of materials that people are trying to use now to, you know, to preserve the habitats from cosmic radiation, but they are not as effective as a magnetic field. I think the future is to combine, to find ideas that could be combined passive and active shielding with the magnetosphere around, you know, materials that help to preserve from cosmic radiation to actually allow astronauts and, um, you know, um, and human exploration to stay on the surface of a planet. Otherwise, we have to go, <laughs> yeah. you know, have to go in the in the inner parts of the planet. I mean, below, beyond, the, you know, below the the surface. But but I guess like I'm imagining like physically, like you've got this spacecraft, and you say that what's key to what your idea is that it's deployable. So would like these these Taurus, I don't know, magnetic field emanators to sort of come out of the spacecraft like like what would it actually look like if we could see the it deploying the shield so it will deploy it will be deployed a few meters away from uh, you know it will start very compact around the the spacecraft and then it will deploy and then it will remain fixed and then you know in space will generate this magnetic field and the astronauts will not will not feel it they won't, won't feel anything they right. will just absorb less radiation so how far end, away would it be? I think our calculations propose is five meters away. We haven't optimized it yet. Right. But yeah. It's no, for sure. So five, five meters away. And so, and then there, and you say that right now your calculations are that there are eight of these booms. Are you calling, giving them a name? But yes. anyway, but that, that are sort of around the spacecraft and, and then these booms or magnetic field arrays will then generate this magnetic field and they'll they'll overlap each other around the spacecraft is that so each coil so the structure of the coils will be deployed and then the coils will start you know generating uh, 
they will have the current inside each coil. This well-generated magnetic field, magnetosphere, and um, yeah, and uh, it will be outside, uh, you know, outside that five meters. So basically, um, that will be the region where the magnetic fields will be active, and inside the five meters where the, has been deployed the device, there will be no magnetic field. And so that's the idea. Where will the particles go? Will you be like here on Earth, we the Earth directs them to the North Pole, and we get beautiful auroras. Where would you be directing the particles? So our magnetic field is not the dipole. So it's not like the one of the Earth mm, is okay. a different configuration. So they will be deflected. Let's say if this is an orbit. It will be the fact like this, like this, like this, like this. So right. they will arrive, you know, from everywhere and being deflected away. So they will be closer, come closer to to the spacecraft, but then being deflected. Right. A percentage will still penetrate because it won't be an efficiency of a hundred percent. But right. yeah, you know, but the idea is to reduce and maybe later on to improve. So, um, and what kind of power requirements do you think this is going to need? So the power we we made very preliminary uh, calculations, but it, it's not going to be um, too high. Um, I think it probably is a seventy hundred watts or something like that. So it's not to be. It's going to be you know starting uh, starting. A, it's not a so huge huge seven seven hundred watts. Is that what she said? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's 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 not that's not that bad it's at probably all. feasible but uh, um but it's not a final calculation right the current of each coil is a few million ampere and we are trying to see if we can optimize that too but if we can you know power it then with the superconductors you know they will working they will keep working in space and so i think this is not a big um, a big problem the big problem we have right now is actually reducing the weight because eight coils, uh, you know, it's a, almost a three tons each coil. So it's 24 each, tons. Each coil is three tons? Three tons. Whoa. So we have to reduce it. But we haven't optimized the material. Three, three tons would give you a lot of metal. Give you a lot of metal. But, you know, I mean, the previous, the yeah. previous models were, I don't know, 300 tons. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I think really the, the launch capacity of a Starship is is like 150 tons to exactly. low Earth orbit. Yeah, so I mean, there'll be lots reduce, of room. We yeah. need to reduce it. And we need to work on, you know, on new materials as well. So we haven't optimized that part yet. But this is the big challenge now yeah. to to think about, you know, um, how to do that. And also for us, next challenges would be interesting to test on space, you know, and be on the International Space Station, one of these coils and see one of these configuration, you know, mm. Um, to see really what, then, what, what do you works. see i mean it sounds like you know attempting to shield in all directions what on a spacecraft where light where mass is everything does this application make more sense on permanent stations like say on the moon or on mars i think this configuration has been so the devices say the design of the structure here that we propose for the NIAC is really for a spacecraft, but we know that, you know, even spacecrafts are in evolution. So, and we know that the, you know, for, for the Artemis project, they are not gonna use active shielding. They are gonna use vests or, you know, something like passive shielding for astronauts. So, but for, um, well, it needs to be, um, 
um, integrated with the good design depending on the habitats uh, you know that you want to you know build up on the moon i think this is the next challenge so once you know active shielding becomes again um you know it becomes you know there are new interesting ideas coming up i think these two um uh, these two areas have to integrate you know the designing for moon for you know for moon habitats moon village that people are thinking now and the active shielding have to be integrated probably they will have a different design depending but but you know but the idea now is to propose new geometries for the magnetic field and you know and and showing that the numbers are there to build them up and then of course you know the integration for the design will be probably changing depending on the habitats that people are thinking about or they have to integrate it in order to have the maximal optimization between right. you know how to create an, an habitat on the moon and if these things will work on the moon eventually become good ideas for mars uh, you know once uh, i think we are not there yet so does mars it is still far away. do you think that it will become more efficient and effective at a larger scale like if you wanted a version that would protect a large space station as opposed to protecting a small spacecraft. I mean, I'm sort of imagining the, the, the mass of these coils, each one is like almost the mass of your entire spacecraft. But if you make a space station that is 100 meters across, do you get do things become a lot more efficient as you scale up well, for the space station really for the like ISS, I don't think you really need to build an active shielding necessarily because you know, they well, for now, well, they're protected already, have, but yeah, exactly. So, but um, if I, I think there's no it, to, to bring them on the moon, you know, you can make use of the, you know, 3D printers. So I think the, some of the stuff can be, you know, can be printed there or, you know, or we have to, you know, not necessarily you have to, you know, to transfer all the material in one launch or so one has to, to think about, you know, how to do it. But I think that there's no, I don't see a big, big problem in building up structures that contains a lot of coil. I think the, the clever we have to be, or people have to be when they build up the structure is really to, to, to build up something that, you know, is well integrated in the structure and, yeah. you know, and, and, uh, um, but, you know, once they will start building up stuff like this, I think that would be, um, you know, one can think about clever ways these days to basically build them up even in, in larger structure they, they can have a different you know configurations and yeah on a on a, on a moon uh, sorry on the on a habitat instead of the spacecraft which is more confined in a small system so wh what is your sort of motivation with this um you know it, it's very rare to see an astronomer who wants to get so involved in space exploration mostly they see space exploration as, as taking away their budget um but so what what fascinates you about this idea of human space exploration? So I had um, a very bad health problem five years ago, four, four years ago, actually, almost five. And so um, I even I had a bad problem in a relatively younger age. I felt that life can be short. And so although I was fascinated by the idea of contributing you know, to society with the knowledge of stars, I thought that I needed to do something more related to space, but more applicable. 
And so I was very much intrigued by what Elon Musk was doing. And I thought, how can I contribute, you know, with my knowledge? And, you know, and with Paolo, we are good friends. We start thinking about, okay, how about the shielding? Because we know as physicists that cosmic rays are harmful. And so we thought that we could come up with ideas. And we actually realized there were not many people working on this. And so we started working. So after three years of hard work, finally, uh, Nayak <laughs> has been awarded to our team. And so I'm actually, um, I'm very, I'm very happy about. It, it feels, I mean, when you think about it, it sort of feels like, like Star Trek, like, you know, put, put up the, put up the shields. You know, that's, yeah. that's the hope, right? Is it like all of these pieces that, that Star Trek and other science fiction has, has taught us will happen in the future. Um, we need them to come true. And I guess it's bit by bit. This is how we, how we do it. If uh, it, it's fascinating work and good luck with the research. Now comes the hard part where you actually have to prove all these ideas and, and deliver your report to to nasa what's the best way for people to keep track of the project and and see how you're doing i think we will create a, a probably a web page soon um and definitely we have been invited uh, well you know we have been invited to some conferences and and we will we will probably post something online so i will keep you posted if Perfect. you're interested now for the next nine months we have to work hard but yeah. We will, we will keep going. And well, so definitely. Well, here's to winning a phase two. That's, that's when, you know, you're really onto something when they, when they, when they keep the, the project going. Well, Elena, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. Absolutely fascinating work, both in galaxies and space exploration. Uh, I appreciate you taking the time and uh, yeah. And good luck. Thank you so much. It was All right. a big pleasure, a great pleasure for me. All right. Well. Take care. See you. Bye-bye.